This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hey everyone, welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie P. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about uh, addiction neural pathways. So before we start talking about addiction neural pathways, let's first talk about the term neural pathway. So we started to learn about neural pathways in the mid-1970s when a series of breakthrough studies helped us understand that addiction was really a problem of the brain and not, it had previously been thought to be a moral failing. So I like to explain neural pathways as if, if you can picture, I, I use a lot of analogies in working with clients. So if you picture this huge mound of dirt and it's kind of a fresh dirt pile, right? That's kind of just been built up. And so the dirt is fresh and there, there comes a rainstorm. Could we predict which way the water would run off this pile of dirt when the rain comes? And initially, I think the answer is no. Like that's not something we can may- maybe detect with our own eye. Um, because when the rain hits that pile of dirt, it will create like this pathway down the p- pile of dirt. But it's not something that our eye can detect which way that's going to go. But it will go the path of least resistance. And then let's say this, you know, big rainstorm comes, ruts or, you know, pathways in this dirt are are uh, created from that storm. Then the sun comes out, right? I live in the desert, so the sun can come out and it can like really bake this dirt. And let's say that this cycle repeats over and over and over again. Now, eventually we can totally detect or predict is the better word. We can totally predict which way when a rainstorm comes, which way the rain and the water will follow because we can usually see these pathways that have been well-worn kind of baked into this pile of dirt. Now, let's say that this pile of dirt, for whatever reason, is close to a window or a window well. And you don't want it, like it keeps flooding. And so you don't want it to come down one of these pathways that has been well-established. How are you going to stop the water from going down this pathway that gets really close to your window well and has created flooding in the past. Well, one of the ways that you'd have to approach this is you would have to block that neural pathway so that the water can no longer go down the path of least resistance. And you're going to have to create a new pathway that this water will go down. You're gonna have to kind of force it to go down a neural pathway. So when we're talking about addiction, um, this is, what we're talking about is these neural pathways. And we know that there are uh, four basic neural pathways, uh, three particularly, and one that kind of is associated with addiction, but three neural pathways that are used in addiction. So all addictions are going to create these basic roadmaps, right? Or these neural pathways in which things are processed in order to activate the brain. And these physical processes are the chemical basis for all addictive disorders. And so scientists use the word neural pathway. We've started using the word neural pathway. So for example, when an alcoholic ingests alcohol, 
this drug eventually triggers the release of a brain chemical called dopamine. So sometimes another faster route to activating dopamine is through sexual activity. We know that sexual activity has a high, like the, the brain processes sexual information, sexual activity at a very, very fast rate. So sexual activity is a sure route to dopamine or a very quick route to dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter and it's a hormone in the brain and it plays a big part in the reward and motivation behavior part of the brain. And dopamine is a precursor of epinephrine and norepinephrine. Now back in the 1950s, James Old and Peter Milner implanted electrodes in the brains of rats and they allowed the animals to press a lever to receive a mild burst of electrical stimulation to their brains. Olden Milner discovered that there were certain areas of the brain that rats would repeatedly press the lever to receive stimulation to. And they found a region known as the septal area, which lies just below the front end of the corpus callosum, to be the most sensitive. Now, one of the rats in their experiments pressed a lever 7,500 times in 12 hours to receive this electrical stimulation at that point of the brain. So Olden Milner's experiments were significant because they appeared to verify the existence of brain structures that are devoted to mediating rewarding experiences. So if the rats were pressing this lever repeatedly to receive stimulation to these areas, it suggested to them that they were enjoying this experience and they wanted more and more and more and more of this. So let's just talk about how our reward system is initially designed to work, right? So it, it isn't really designed to work in such a quick process that can happen in addiction. That's why sometimes we call addiction this hijacking of our reward system. So our reward system is meant to work, you know, that, that we're working towards something and this is going to take some time and that varies based on what we are working on. But there's a challenge, which the brain loves challenges, and there's something that we're working towards, and we may spend you know, a week, a month, a year even, working towards this end goal or this desired outcome. And when we reach that end goal and when we get the desired outcome, our reward system, you know, it has its own, the body has its own chemicals, dopamine being one of these, that it can drop into the system that makes us feel good. And we're like, yeah, I, I feel this internal sense of reward, right? Now, if you're a parent, you know that with young kids, that reward process hasn't quite internalized. It's more external. And this is where parents will do, you know, uh, like a sticker chart or different things where if you do this many things, then you get a reward. And this is all a very external process because the kids are young, because the brain isn't fully developed. Eventually, though, we want that process to shift to this internal process, right? We want this to to begin shifting really um, kind of young teens into the older teen years, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, and then something that is repeatedly kind of shifted inward. And so I do these things because this is aligning with my value system and that feels good to me to behave in a way that's congruent with my value system. 
Um, I do nice things or kind things to other people because that feels good to me, right? That's what we're talking about. And that's part of that reward system that's already designed in our brain. But when we think of addiction, right, sometimes if you remember the Staples commercial with the easy button, right, and and we're just pushing that over and over and over again. And it's hijacking the reward system because it's not something that I've been working on, right? It's not something that I've like literally done, like a kind gesture, paying it forward, or, you know, working on a paper that I have to submit. And I've spent a lot of hours working on this research paper and I get a good grade on it, right? Or the research um, does what I wanted it to do. And that is going to activate my reward system. But with addiction, we've got kind of this easy button where I'm feeling good and my reward system is activated and I've really not done anything other than ingest a substance, if we're talking about substance addiction, or um, engaged in a behavior when we're talking about behavioral addictions. And, And particularly with sex addiction, right? I mean, if we're in a committed relationship and if this relationship is healthy, then engaging in sexual activity with that person is obviously going to feel good to my reward system. But I don't have to be. Uh, in a relationship, right? Or I can have an illusion of a relationship. This is for love addicts. Or I can just engage in sex, which is going to make my body feel good because that's how my body is designed. And I'm going to get a hit just by any sexual behavior, right? I don't have to have put in hard work to establish this healthy relationship. I can just have sex. um, I can watch porn and it's going to activate my reward system. Now, it's important to note that since the earliest research on the reward system, our perspective on dopamine's role in reward has changed slightly. So at one time, dopamine was considered to be the neurotransmitter responsible for causing the experience of pleasure, but it's now thought to be involved with aspects of reward other than direct experience of enjoyment. So while the details are still being worked out, some have suggested that dopamine is involved in encoding memories about a reward, which I think is fascinating, right? So what what that's saying is that dopamine is involved in kind of laying down this track system, so to speak. And, And so when we're not feeling good, right, our dopamine has laid down this track system that the brain remembers like, hey, last time when we were feeling this, this is what we did in order to feel better. And so dopamine kind of lays down this track system, reminding us what we're doing. And again, this is this neural pathway that when we use over and over and over again, becomes the path of least resistance, right? This is what the brain's doing, like A plus B equals C. Hey, you're not feeling good. We do this and you feel better. So in addiction neuropathways, as we said, all addictions create basic roadmaps in order to activate the brain. So these physical um, processes that is involved in activating this neural, uh, this neural pathway. Let me give you an example. So when an alcoholic ingests alcohol, for example, this drug eventually triggers the release of a brain chemical called dopamine. So like we said, the effect of dopamine varies depending on what we're engaging in, but the result is still the same. You're going to feel better. 
So exactly how you will feel varies depending on the neural pathway that you use to activate dopamine production in the first place, right? So you may think this is how I feel in my addiction, but when we really start breaking down addiction neural pathways, you'll find, uh, like I said, that there's a couple of neural pathways that are involved and that dopamine isn't always the exact same feeling in order to feel better. There's a couple of ways, which when you look at it, in our normal life, feeling good doesn't always look exactly the same or the same things make me feel good, right? I'm a complex person. And so there can be a lot of different ways in order to do that. And this is what um, we're talking about. Now, when I'm going to be pulling from is a workbook that we use often working with sex addiction. um, And that's uh, the book, Facing the Shadow. It's a workbook by Dr. Patrick Carnes. The first, well, let's talk about the four addiction neural pathways, and then we'll we'll talk specifically about those pathways. So the first one is an arousal neural pathway. The second is a numbing neural pathway. The third is a fantasy neural pathway. And then the fourth is what we call a deprivation pathway. We'll talk about how that one works a little bit different. So the arousal neural pathway is all about pleasure and intensity. So the most common methods of stimulating arousal pathways are high-risk high risk behaviors, right? So if we're talking about sex addiction, this is high-risk sex or high-risk relationships. It may also include like compulsive burglary or shoplifting. Um, it's going to, anything, it, you know, if you're talking about your behaviors as a therapist, if you're listening to clients talk about these behaviors, it's kind of going to be this on-the-edge behavior. It can also have anything to do with violence. Violence is highly uh, intense. And so if we're looking at violent porn, again, this is this arousal neural pathway. So certain chemicals, uh, including amphetamines, cocaine, and ecstasy, also amplify the arousal neural pathway. And these chemicals often enhance or combine with the high-risk behavior. So for example, we see sex addicts who will be sexual only when they're on cocaine and vice versa. When a chemical and a high-risk behavior are combined, we call this fusing. So this means that they become a package experience. And many chemically dependent people assume that their high-risk behavior happened because they were using. I was doing some supervision with a CSAT uh, just last week. And he was consulting about a client who has this very same thing, right? And the client believes that the high-risk behavior is a result of the substances that he was using at the time. And that otherwise, he wouldn't necessarily engage in those high-risk behaviors. Now, that's partly true because of this fusing or because of this packaging. The problem is, though, you're not going to do one without the other, Right, And so when you use these substances, this high-risk behavior is going to happen. And when we're talking about neural pathways, sometimes that is the goal, right? This is the pathway that I need to activate in order to accomplish what I need to accomplish in my body. And so when I use cocaine or when I use ecstasy, this is what I'm doing. Like this is how the brain is operating. We're going to talk about a little bit more about that. Um, Addiction specialists also refer to what we call the opponent process of addiction. And this means that high arousal, uh, this means basically, let me back up, this means that 
emotions are also associated with the neural pathway. So if I'm going to you know, engage in high-risk behavior and I'm going to use substances in order to help me engage in high-risk behavior, there's a certain emotion that I'm experiencing that activates this neural pathway. So uh, for example, a heroin addict goes through pleasure and ends up in pain just as a long-distance runner goes through pain and ends up in pleasure. So we start to see um, these interactions with pain um, and this is what the arousal neural pathway is all about. It's pain. When when I was growing up, one of the things my dad would say, I remember this time I was, I stubbed my toe. I turned the corner like too quickly and I stubbed like the last two toes, the, the two smallest toes, right? And it hurt. If you've ever done that, it, it hurt so bad. And they both were broken. And for those two toes, there's nothing really that you can do for those two broken toes. But it really hurt and I kind of like, went down to the ground and I was like kind of rocking back and forth just that like oh my gosh this hurts so bad and my dad had witnessed the whole thing and he was standing there and he said here come here let me like hit you in the shoulder and then your toes will stop hurting right so this is kind of that pain neural pathway of I create intensity over here kind of on purpose in order to reduce the pain I may be experiencing from rejection or conflict or this uh, family of origin trauma attachment wounding. So this is kind of how that works. That's the opponent process of addiction. Now, some people actually incorporate pain into their pleasure, right? Those two things have become fused and how they experienced sexuality, for example, let's say if this happened at young ages, it's not uncommon that the body would have experienced some physical pain with the sexual experience. So for some people, those pain and pleasure kind of became fused because the body also responded the way the body's supposed to when sexual stimuli happens. So those things can be fused. Uh, the next neural pathway that is involved in addiction is the numbing neural pathway. And the emotion that's involved in the numbing neural pathway is anxiety. So this neural pathway produces a calming, relaxing, soothing, kind of a sedative process. Um, it creates this analgesic experience in the brain. So while drugs and alcohol are obvious leaders in this sedation process, behaviors such as compulsive masturbation, gambling, and again, in gambling, kind of the high stakes gambling, playing the you know tables and all that kind of stuff, that's going to be more intense. So that's probably more involved in the um, arousal neural pathway. When we're talking about gambling in terms of like the slot machines, right? If you've ever been in a casino and you kind of see the people playing the slots, they're really kind of in this rhythmic motion and it's kind of this numbing and reducing anxiety experience. Shopping can also be this way. Sometimes I've had clients who will get on like some of the apps like Tinder and they're not even necessarily on the app in order to meet somebody, but they're just swiping and scrolling through face after face after face. That's kind of that numbing experience. Overeating is another one that can kind of numb those worries. So chemicals typically used for numbing are alcohol or other depressant drugs and heroin. 
And again, they can be combined with certain behaviors into packages. So the alcoholic can also become a compulsive overeater and they can kind of just binge their way into this oblivion. So whether it's through comfort food or the mind-numbing repetition of a slot machine, this neural pathway tries to satisfy the insatiable. Researchers Harvey Milkman and Stanley Sunderworth refer to these practices as the satiation addictions, whose goal is to keep anxiety at bay. But the whole tip that they're trying to feel is bottomless, so it's never actually going to completely satisfy. That's thus the addiction, right? So we also kind of look at how do these neural pathways interact with each other, right? So do I engage in high risk behaviors and I'm out cruising and I'm looking for somebody, whatever that looks like, then I come home and I have to like uh, take my system down a notch, right? So I have to kind of unwind and then maybe I go into this compulsive masturbation or maybe I get online and I'm shopping or I overeat, right? So we'll start to really, we can really map out how all of this is working. The third neural pathway that's involved is fantasy. So escape is the goal of this neural pathway. And you can see how all of these are providing some pleasure in different ways. But escape is the goal of the fantasy neural pathway. So people can alter their perception of reality by using chemicals such as marijuana, uh, the psychedelic drugs, uh, behaviors like obsession and preoccupation, when combined with the right rituals, can actually also create this trance-like state. So the addict literally enters an altered reality. Uh, now, sex addicts may be familiar with this trance-like state from their experiences of cruising in a car or a bar or watching porn, engaging in online sexual behavior, or just sitting in a strip bar, right? They're escaping uh, the workday. They're escaping uh, the problems that they're facing, all of those kinds of things. So we can find many more examples of this neural pathway. For example, a man goes into a casino to leave his cares behind and focuses only on his next win, right? And then finds that he stayed in the casino for, for way longer than he intended. Maybe a doctor obsessively checks her trades between almost every patient to see whether she's made or lost money. At the core of such, like these obsessions, right, is this governing fantasy. So in gambling, the fantasy is the big win that will make everything all right and reduce my stress and escape me into this other reality. I've worked with clients where they kind of have these fantasies, uh, preoccupations of, you know, getting money, whether it's an inheritance, whether it's this uh, gaining this windfall, right? Winning the lottery or gambling and winning big. But they actually start to live in that reality, even though that's not a, that's an altered reality. And they begin to spend money as though money is not a worry. Right, and it only kind of creates additional anxieties, additional worries, and so again, they may use some of the other neural pathways in order to manage and escape the reality. With drugs, right, the fantasy is the right high with the right stuff, and that's a lot of times what uh, substance addicts are chasing. In sex addiction, the fantasy also usually involves uh, kind of creating the right situation finding the right person or this cosmic relationship, 
that makes everything better, makes me whole, makes me feel great about myself. So preoccupation and obsession in, in this neural pathway are all about shame and the desire not to be in your body, not to be in your life, not to face what you are actually facing. And so as a result, addicts will create and inhabit this alternate reality. We also can see this in children who are traumatized or children who come from dysfunctional families. And they've kind of had to learn as a coping mechanism, as a survival mechanism to dissociate from reality. So they may prefer to live in fantasies or daydreams and they act as if their made up world is real. They also may discover this technique called compartmentalization. So this is the ability to create separate compartments in your life in which uncomfortable internal realities can be placed and then ignored. So many addicts will say that it seems as though they have more than one person living inside them. I've had clients who are concerned about like, do I have that mental health disorder? We call it DID, um, where I have multiple personalities. Well, no, but you're very compartmentalized. And so who you are depends on what compartment is open and what compartment you're living in. The book by Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, Jekyll and Hyde, he was describing compartmentalization in alcoholism. We've come to learn that the author was describing compartmentalization in alcoholism. So ultimately, the fantasy neural pathway is a solution to which people turn when acknowledging and living with their real self seems too much to bear. And then the fourth neural pathway that is involved in addiction is the deprivation neural pathway. With this neural pathway, control is the goal. Now, the emotion that's associated with this neural pathway is fear or leading all the way to terror. So when you think about it, fear or the the reaction to fear, if I'm living with fear, right, that's a very uncomfortable state in my body. And it makes sense that then I would want to control because if I'm, if I'm fearful about something, usually there's a powerlessness or a helplessness of, uh, attached to that. And so it seems like control would reduce or eliminate the fear that I'm experiencing. So this is where anorexic spending or sexual anorexia or food anorexia share this common assumption. And it's doing without this is the common assumption that doing without is the surest way to defend against the terror or the fear that I'm experiencing. Now, from the worldview deprivation, there's this sense of euphoric release that happens. Um, this is a release from the burden of having to deal with deep-seated fears of insufficiency. So, for example, deprivation can be paired with the belief that there's not enough money. And so in order to deal with the fear and the uh, terror that might come with not having enough money, I go into this deprivation phase of, I just don't spend anything. And that somehow that's going to, that control of not spending any money is going to reduce the terror of actually not having money. And that um, belief that there's not enough, that I'm not enough, there's not enough money, there's not enough sex, there's not enough love, there's not enough food. So people can also 
fear that they themselves are not enough, right? So anything in their life is not going to be enough because they themselves are not enough. Um, this can be, you know, and, and this not being enough can be connected to I'm overweight, right? So I'm not thin enough. I'm not attractive enough. I'm not wealthy enough. I'm not smart enough. Part of the terror felt by people in this deprivation fit, uh, neural pathway stems from the belief that something terrible will happen if their needs are met or satisfied. So again, I mean, this gets really, this can get really complicated when you're dealing with this neural pathway. And it's this, often it's rooted in some trauma, right? Where needs weren't met and needs weren't satisfied. But also it led to this fear of what would happen if those needs were met, if those needs were satisfied. In the neural pathway, in the deprivation neural pathway, uh, we find out that our needs can be controlled. So people who activate this neural pathway can actually feel a sense of superiority and elation. Uh, There's a lot of research actually that exists to show that the body prepares itself for starvation by releasing endorphins, which is this physical effect that produces a feeling of elation. So we can also actually get a hit from controlling and depriving and going out, going without. Um, but we can also kind of feel this superiority, right? That I'm better than you because I don't need, my body doesn't need to be driven by the same wants and needs that another person's body is driven by. So I, I can feel um, superior in that way. Now, people with addictions are often caught up in some severe deprivation. So this neural pathway becomes the balance wheel for extreme behaviors, either acting out or acting in. And it can also create a predictable cycle of neuropathic, what we call binge and purge cycles. So we can have this phases or stages that we go through where we are binging in some form, right? We're acting out our addiction in some form. And then we go through phases of purging where I'm not doing any of that, right? But but it's not necessarily sobriety. It's more of a purge state. And anytime we're in a purge state, it will, which is an extreme, it's going to lead to the opposite extreme, which is this binge phase. So uh, for addicts, they can binge purge within the same like addiction. So they can go through binge purge cycles with substances or binge purge cycles with sex, but it can also kind of jump addictions or jump behaviors, right? So I may binge with food and act out and purge with sex, right? I find this is quite common with female sex addicts that I work with, where um, if they start losing weight, um, the risk for acting out goes up. So if I'm and not necessarily anorexic in my eating, but I'm being mindful of my eating to the, to the point that I'm losing some weight and actually feeling good about myself, then I want to binge in sexual acting out behavior. And when I go into kind of a purge state with my sexual acting out, then I start to binge on food and I start to put the weight back on. So again, it can be with these binge purges can be within the same behaviors or they can again, packaged like we talked about. I think what's important um, to understand is that addicts are constantly wandering in and out of neural pathways depending on what they need. 
Now, in terms of recovery, especially at the beginning of recovery, it may be more important to know which neural pathways are involved, even more so than which addiction is being used to access it. Obviously, that's helpful to understand so that uh, sometimes as therapists, we talk about recovery being this game of whack-a-mole where, you know, if we get some stability in this uh, behavior or substance, then another one pops up, right? And as, as one goes down, another one pops up and it's constantly trying to, you know, whack-a-mole. But I think when we're starting to look at the emotions that are coming up and how we are managing those emotions through these addictive neural pathways, that really gives us this landscape and knowing how we're managing it in terms of which neural pathway we're using actually can reveal the internal problem that needs to be addressed in therapy and needs to be addressed so that recovery can be long-term. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.